Sally Nichols is a former graduate of the highly successful Bath Spa MA in writing for young people. Her first novel, Ways to Live Forever, was written during her course and published in 2008. It won the Waterstone Children's Book Prize and was later made into a film. Sally was awarded the Glenn Dimplex New Writer of the Year uh, for her achievements. Five further novels include Season of the Secrets, All Fall Down, Close Your Pretty Eyes, An Island of Your Own, and in 2017, Things a Bright Girl Can Do, a novel about the women's suffrage movement. She's written Quick Reads for Barrington Stoke and a picture book, The Button Book. Her subjects are wide ranging and often, but not always, dark in tone. It's always intriguing to discover her latest book. Newly published, The Silent Stars Go By, is set during and just after the First World War. 17-year-old Margot is pregnant and her sweetheart Harry is missing in action. The only course of action seems to allow the village reverend and his wife to adopt the baby and pass him off as their own. The book deals with Margot's emotional pain and when Harry returns from the war, she is forced with the dilemma as to whether to tell him her secret or not. Welcome, Sally. I can't wait to talk to you about this very beautiful and moving book. Thank you. I'd like to start, if we can, with a reading just to give our listeners a flavour. Okay, so this is the, this is the opening scene of, of our book. Crowshurst Farm, Crowshurst, North Yorkshire. 9th of December, 1919. Dear Margot, I do not wish to be a millstone round your neck, and if you really would rather have nothing more to do with you, I won't be such an ass as to insist that you uphold your promises or anything beastly like that. But I think it only polite to inform you that I shall be coming home for Christmas, and we are likely, in the usual run of things, to find ourselves somewhat in one another's pockets. We may no longer be lovers, but I would hate to think we were ever anything but friends. I cannot claim to understand why you chose to ignore my previous communications, but I trust that you have your reasons. I must say, I think you might have the decency to tell me what they are. If you have heard any ill of me, please allow me the chance to explain yourself. I can't imagine what the devil it is you might have heard. I remain your most obedient, etc. Truly, Margot, I do. Harry Singer. Margot Allen sat in a corner of the third-class compartment carriage and read this letter for the 15th time. Her mother had forwarded it without comment from the vicarage. The wheels of the train went clackety-clack, clackety-clack over the tracks. The little steam heater blasted hot air into the compartment, and outside the windows the Vale of York swept past, all grey and dark green beneath the midwinter sky. Her small hands, in pale, rather worn leather gloves, rested on her skirt, which was the exact blue of her eyes. Her blonde hair was perfectly arranged. The darns in her overcoat were almost, but not quite, invisible. Margot was 19, but right now she felt herself fully 45, at least. The letter, like those which had preceded it, remained unanswered. I trust that you have your reasons. She leant her head back onto the seat. Clearly things couldn't go on like this. The secret should never have been kept from him. One way or another, they were going to have to face it. It's quite emotional listening to you read that. Do you feel emotional when you're reading it? <laughs> Not really. 
really. I mean, oh. you, you spend so long in a book, you know, writing it and rewriting it and trying to make it work that um, I'm afraid I've never been one of those authors who cries over my character's fate. <laughs> Before we get into the story itself, I wanted to start, if it's OK, with your dedication, because you, you say that this, is, this book is for your grandmother, Mary Nichols, who kept her war baby. I wondered if that was the spark that set you on the journey to this book or not? No, again, this was another one that um, my editor suggested. I didn't have a, a sort of burning way idea when I kind of suggested various things to her. And she said, well, actually, she was interested in this idea of a, a baby who's, who's raised as a, a sibling, that this was quite a common thing um, for, you know, the older child, child's younger sibling being, being raised as part of the family. And, and she said she was really interested in kind of the interdynamics of how that would work, which is something that interests me as well. I think because Margaret says in the book, there isn't a rule book for it. Like generally speaking, the, the way we cope with social interaction is that we have we have these kind of rule books. We know what a parent's job is and what a, a grandmother's job is and what a godmother's job is. We, you know, you say, oh, that's, you know, that's not something you should do. That's something the mother should do. And we, we've, we've built up kind of a, a rule book for what a step parent's job is and we we have to have these kind of these really strict ways of working otherwise things start to fall apart and this is a scenario because it's so secret that isn't talked about it isn't dramatized and there isn't a rule book for it and I found that that a really interesting idea to to explore because Margot like most of the characters in my books is is fundamentally a decent person she's trying to do the right thing by by her child and she says you know I don't I don't want to come and get in the way and be his mother because then he, he needs I want him to have a mother who loves him and I don't want him to feel second best in the family so she and she also feels she has a responsibility to her mother who has taken on this child and you know she's very grateful for her mother in a sort of horrible way and she doesn't want to get in her mother's way either but at the same time something I found out when I was was researching the book is um, we didn't have legal adoption in this country until 1926, um, 1926 Adoption Act. So we had lots of orphanages and we had mother and baby homes and we had we had people, you know, Magdalene Maudlin laundries and things like that, people who signed away what they thought was, was mm -hmm. their right to their child and people who signed adoption certificates and thought that they'd given up their child. But there wasn't a legal basis for that. Legally in British law, if you were the mother and your name is on the birth certificate, then the child belonged to you and what that means uh, which was this wonderful sort of going over the fireplace is that the baby's birth certificate James's birth certificate has Margot's name on it and Margot knows this and she knows that it's just kind of sitting there folded away in a drawer somewhere and one day in all probability this child is going to find it he's going to read it you know there's going to be some scenario where he wants his birth certificate and there her name is going to be on it and she has this this kind of horrible sense that she she wants she wants she wants him not not to hate her when she finds that and I just found that really interesting that there isn't there isn't a right answer and there sort of isn't a right answer when she's pregnant as well that you know she says at one point this is the best thing I did and the worst thing I did so I was just really interested in this idea of what happens when you get incredibly well-meaning people put in this scenario where there's no right answer and how do you you deal with that and yeah my grandmother um this was in the second world war um she had my father and she wasn't married and my father didn't have didn't know his father and he she kept him um and so again this is the 1940s so it's 
it's sort of 20 years later, but it's still a burden that he carried as a child, being being the bastard bastard son. You know, his parents weren't married. He was a bastard. Um, and that was something that he, he carried with him all his life. Um, and I guess I like, I like to dedicate the books to, to people who are who are sort of relevant to the story. And I guess I was kind of interested in this idea that this is a really common thing that happened. So the idea was there, but then why set it at this particular time during the First World War? Well, I mean, it, sort of selfishly, I'd done all this research for things about God can do, and it's a it's an period that I'm interested in anyway. I also my characters are generally decent people. And I didn't like the idea that the baby's father would be this sort of cat who'd refused to marry her. I, I thought it was more interesting if he'd had a really legitimate reason for not marrying her. And the war was just kind of sitting there as an obvious reason. If you haven't read the book, um, the baby's father was taken prisoner in the war and she thinks that he's dead and he comes back in 1919 and, and she realises that he's not dead and has to kind of deal with the consequences of that. It's interesting because in this book there are no villains. There's nobody who's acting out of anything other than what they believe to be the best. Yeah. And as you say, a lot of your books are similar in, in that respect. Um, and I think it's hard to write without a villain. So, <laughs> you know, there's nobody to butt up, up against. So how does this reflect your personal philosophy? And is it hard writing without a villain? not at all it's what I like I, I'm not really interested in reading about about people I don't like I find television programs like Breaking Bad where everyone is kind of unpleasant I'm just like why do I care about these people think doing, doing the wrong the wrong thing my husband and I have just finished watching all of ER and that's really interesting because in the early series everybody is basically a good person and they are basically incredibly competent and they're basically doing their best and I, I found that incredibly compelling uh, and then it, it gets to later series they start just bringing in these like incompetent idiots and it just lost a lot of the the appeal same reason I like the West Wing it's called competence porn really and so that's what I'm interested in writing about I'm also I was also brought up a Quaker uh, still am a Quaker and one of the the key tenets of Quakerism is this idea of that of God in everybody which some Quakers interpret as that of good in everybody and that's something that is a huge part of how I try and interpret the world so yeah that's what I like to write about and that's what I would like to read about and it, it I don't find it hard actually um I find villains quite hard to write <laughs> like why are they why are they behaving like that what how do I how do I make them make them move like that? And there are plenty of stories. I mean, that's why romances are interesting things to write because there's a clear stru story structure that isn't about people being villains. And I'm interested. I mean, like I say, Margot is in this position where she doesn't have a script, and I think it's a really interesting thing to wrestle with this situation where there genu I say there genuinely isn't a right thing for her to do, and there are plenty of wrong things. But how, how does she find a way that is right? And I think if you can see how desperately she's trying to get it right, it, it makes you more forgiving of, of her mistakes. Mm. Just while we're talking about characters and the goodness in all of them, I really like the father. Okay. There's two scenes that really stuck in my head. One was where he was making the biscuits on Christmas morning. Yeah. And James is sitting on his knee 
that says so much. And then, of course, she has a kind of confessional morning with him, that early morning talk where she explains um, what she's done. And I could see the annoying bits about him, but I really liked him. <laughs> Good. I'm really pleased. <laughs> Thank you. So just to come back to some of the, the questions that I had for you, Margot's 19 at the start of this. It's a, a, a time of very mixed emotion. Um, I wondered when you were writing the book, whether you found out anything about the traumas that can occur for young women when they do put their babies up yes. for adoption, because that really comes through very strongly. It's, a huge, it's a hugely huge. I found, I found an American book, by a woman who'd interviewed women who had voluntarily given up. A child. So in Britain, usually people whose children have been adopted, they've been forcibly removed. But in America, there's this whole culture where you give up your child. And the trauma just kind of bleeds from the pages, really. I mean, Margot was very lucky in that she has a, still has a relationship with her child and she still knows where they were. I mean, for many of these women, the hardest thing was that this child just disappeared and they didn't know if it was happy, if it was alive or dead, you know, if they were ever going to see it again. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that if you can keep up a relationship, some sort of relationship, whether it's letters or whatever, that's that's much easier for everybody everybody to cope with. So she's lucky in in that sense. But yeah, and this the secret having having secrets is a really difficult thing for human beings to cope with, and a shameful secret as well. This sense that you're trying to build a place for yourself in the world, and that if people knew the truth about you they would behave differently to, to you. A lot of the women in this book said that when they got to the point where they could tell their, their new partner or they had other children and these other children, when they got to sort of 13 or 14 or 15 and were old enough to talk about it, that was a big step in the healing was telling, telling their children that they had a, an older sibling. And when they found acceptance, if they found it, so not everybody did, but when if they did, that made the burden easier to have because there's this kind of sense of living a lie and being this sort of, and Margot talked about it, this sort of war between your real self and the innocent virginal appearance that you're you're putting onto the rest of the world. And that's hugely difficult to deal with. A kind of sense, sense of loss as well. The book said people either had, it was very rare that people would go on and sort of have two children. They either went on and had kind of six or seven or they didn't have any this sense that either they couldn't cope or they were trying to replace the baby. Because you're talking there, uh, one thing that comes through very strongly is about this difference that you've mentioned between the internal and the external. And she starts looking at other people differently and wondering whether their internal lives are not the same as the way that she's seeing them on yeah. the outside. Uh, so it opens her up to start thinking about those sorts of things. And then the other thing you mentioned is secrets. You've mentioned that quite a few times. It's really secret that drives this narrative. And I wondered whether it really is at the heart of all family stories. I don't know. I mean, not, not necessarily, I, I don't think. I mean, I think a lot of families do have secrets. I mean, particularly in this time of life where it's not it's not acceptable to be gay, it's not acceptable to be having sex outside marriage, you know, it's not, it, there's a, it's a very kind of rigid, particularly for women, very limited paths down which you were able to go in a sort of socially acceptable way, which will have meant a lot of people had secrets. Should we talk about romance? Uh, the romantic relationship between Margot and Harry, I think, is beautifully drawn, and they do eventually reunite. But 
so much has changed and yet so much remains the same and that you know their feelings are pretty constant uh, for each other there's a chapter in the book which stands out it's called a hundred years ago which sort of captures that uh, beautifully and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you chose to write it in that way I I wasn't so much interested in telling a kind of pregnancy story I was more interested in how that would affect the kind of interdynamics between Margot and her family and, and Harry and things like that and I couldn't work out at first how to tell the story I thought oh god I'm gonna, gonna have to meet and they're gonna have to court and then she's gonna have to get pregnant and then she's gonna you know and like I was like there's like three years worth of story here and so I was really excited when I, I realized I could set the whole thing over two weeks you know the other stuff could happen in in flashback and you could have this this sort of everybody coming back at the village and I mean this book and things a bright girl can do are very consciously inspired by sort of the sort of novels that were being written at the time and a lot of those are about people living in genteel poverty like Margot is and a lot you know this this kind of middle class background and a lot of them are romances so I like the idea I like I like a romance because it, it gives you a really clear plot and I liked the idea I like the idea that they were all coming back for Christmas and I liked the idea that it would be this sort of midwinter romance. And again, I really wanted Harry to be a decent person. I wanted him to be someone like Margot, who is who is doing his best. And I like this idea of him as this sort of earnest young man holding this sort of happiness in the world. She talks about him as having this, this kind of aura of happiness. And she's this, this woman who's been so unhappy. And he comes back and he's offering her everything that she thought she's lost. But now, as well as having to do the right thing by her son and her mother, she also has to do the right thing by him. And I mean, there's a line in the book where she's talking to her friend and and her friend sort of says, well, surely he'll forgive you. And she says, look, you know, I've taken his child away from him for two for two years. You know, he's imagine, how would you feel if you discovered that you had a, a child and you, you hadn't known about it for two and a half years and it had been given by, to somebody else to raise and that's a big thing, like that's a huge thing. I couldn't get the ending right because I, fundamentally that's not something that, that you can you can get your head around in the space of two weeks. And he not unreasonably feels betrayed by this, but at the same time, it's completely unreasonable because she hasn't done anything wrong. And I mean, I almost wish I'd had more time to kind of get his head around. She didn't do anything wrong and yet she has, she has she's given my child away. <laughs> It's really interesting because um, one of the questions that I had um, is it's a story that could have had a number of plausible endings. Um, And I wonder, without telling the specifics of that final resolution, whether you knew what that was going to be from the outset or whether you were still making your mind up as you were writing it. I knew I wanted a bittersweet ending because what Margot wants in the book is to be able to keep her child she wants the future that she would have had if they hadn't slept together. She wants she wants a husband, she wants a child. Um, that's one possible ending. There's also the idea that she gets the child, but she doesn't get the husband, or she gets the husband, or she doesn't get the child. I mean, she can, she can perfectly legally, at any point that she wants, go to her mother and say, this is my child and I want to raise him. Like, that is, that is a possibility that he's open to her. And some people, and the Astrid Lindgren, um, I discovered, had a child and she put him in a foster home 
Um, so not with her parents, she put him in a foster home. And when she was when he was eight, I think she got married to a broad-minded gentleman and, and she took the child back and was able to raise him. I mean, that's legally an option <laughs> for Marco. Um, and then there's the option that she gets the husband, but she doesn't get, get the son or she doesn't get anybody. Um, and yeah, I mean, those are all, all plausible. I, I know I have a bit of a reputation as a, as a sort of tearjerker, but I, I do, most of my books have some hope in there somewhere. Um, they aren't actually bleak and full of despair. This is one of the things that's interesting about writing for young people, that, that they always have the rest of their lives in front of them. And no matter what dreadful things you've, you've put them through in the course of a novel, there's always, there's always the possibility of a, of a, of a hopeful future. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the the title, The Silent Stars Go By, which is from the children's carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, and how you came to settle on that title. It's beautiful. (laughs) Again, that was was an Anderson title. I I, I didn't have a title that I I liked, and they they liked the idea of Christmas carols because it's such a a Christmassy Christmassy book. I come up with surprisingly few of my titles. A lot of them are from the publishers. Maybe I can ask you a slightly different question then. Why do you find it so hard to come up with titles? I don't. I come up with loads of titles. They just don't <laughs> like them. <laughs> Ways to Live Forever was my title and Things a Bright Girl Can Do was, was my title. But I think a lot of the others involved some backwards and forwards before we found one that everybody mm. liked. Well, it is an incredibly moving book. Uh, it's interesting that you said about... Um, a kind of period piece. I do know because I read your author's note, but I was reminded of Stratfield and yes, the vicarage it's a very family. Sort <laughs> of book. It really, well, she grew up in a in a vicarage. I mean, that her her autobiography is 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 really useful because she's writing as a she's writing in nineteen sixty, she wrote in nineteen sixties, and she's writing as a writer. So she's very good at all the details that you you find interesting as a family and and I guess just the the kind of obsessions with having the right clothes and having the right shoes and the right bag I mean yeah a lot of her books are characters in this sort of genteel poverty which Mm -hmm. is a very familiar theme from Edwardian literature yeah it's interesting because I think you can you can get the factual detail from researching but by reading the novel you get the sensibility and yeah. you get the feeling yeah. of the time as well. I always read a lot of novels when I'm, yeah. when I'm writing historical. <laughs> Sally, thank you so much uh, for talking to us today about The Silent Stars Go By and uh, wish you all the best with it. Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for listening to In the Reading Corner with Just Imagine. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can find many more on the podcast section of our website, justimagine.co.uk plus via iTunes or SoundCloud or your usual podcast provider. Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues.